Chapter Ten of Gunman's Reckoning by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fifty miles over any sort of going is a stiff march. Fifty miles uphill and down, and mostly over districts where there was only a rough cow path in lieu of a road, made a prodigious day's work, and certainly it was an almost incredible feat for one who professed to hate work with a consuming passion, and who had looked upon an eight-mile jaunt the night before as an insuperable burden. Yet such was the distance which Donnegan had covered, and now he drove the pack-mule out on the shoulder of the hill in full view of the corner, with the triangle of the young Muddy and Cristobal rivers embracing the little town. Even the gaunt, leggy mule was tired to the dropping point, and the tough buckskin, which trailed up behind, went with downward head. When Louise Macon turned to him, he had reached the point where he swung his head around first and then grudgingly followed the movement with his body. The girl was tired also, in spite of the fact that she had covered every inch of the distance in the saddle. There was that violet shade of weariness under her eyes and her shoulders slumped forward. Only Donnegan, the hater of labor, was fresh. They had started in the first dusk of the coming day. It was now the yellow time of the slant afternoon sunlight. Between these two points there had been a body of steady plodding. The girl had looked askance at that gaunt form of Donnegan's when they began, but before three hours, seeing that the spring never left this step, nor the swinging rhythm his stride, she began to wonder. This afternoon, nothing he did could have surprised her. From the moment he entered the house the night before, he had been a mystery. Till her death day, she would not forget the fire with which he had stared up at her from the foot of the stairs. But when he came out of her father's room, not cowed and whipped as most men left it, he looked at her with a veiled glance, and since that moment there had always been a mist of indifference over his eyes when he looked at her. In the beginning of that day's march all she knew was that her father trusted her to this stranger, Donnegan, to take her to the corner where he would find Jack Landis and bring Jack back to his old allegiance and find what he was doing with his time and his money. It was a quite natural proceeding, for Jack was a wild sort, and he was probably gambling away all the gold that was dug in his mines. It was perfectly natural throughout, except that she should have been trusted so entirely to a stranger. That was a remarkable thing, but then her father was a remarkable man, and it was not the first time that his actions had been inscrutable, whether concerning her or the affairs of other people. She had heard men come into their house cursing Colonel Macon with death in their faces, and she had seen them sneak out after a soft-voiced interview and never appear again. In her eyes her father was invincible, all-powerful. When she thought of superlatives, she thought of him. Her conception of mystery was the smile of the Colonel, and her conception of tenderness was bounded by the gentle voice of the same man. Therefore, it was entirely sufficient to her that the colonel had said, Go and trust everything to Donnegan. 
He has the power to command you, and you must obey until Jack comes back to you. That was odd, for as far as she knew, Jack had never left her. But she had early discarded any will to question her father. Curiosity was a thing which the fat man hated above all else. Therefore, it was really not strange to her that throughout the journey her guide did not speak half a dozen words to her. Once or twice, when she attempted to open the conversation, he had replied with crushing monosyllables, and there was an end. For the rest, he was always swinging down the trail ahead of her at a steady, unchanging, rapid stride. Uphill and down, it never varied. And so they came out upon the shoulder of the hill and saw the storm center of the corner. They were in the hills behind the town. Two miles would bring them into it. And now Donnegan came back to her from the mule. He took off his hat and shook the dust away, and brushed a hand across his face. He was still unshaven. The red stubble made him hideous, and the dust and perspiration covered his face as with a mask. Only his eyes were rimmed with white skin. "'You'd better get off the horse here,' said Donnegan. He held her stirrup, and she obeyed without a word. "'Sit down.' She sat down on the flat-topped boulder which he designated, and, looking up, observed the first sign of emotion in his face. He was frowning, and his face was drawn a little. "'You are tired,' he stated. "'A little.' "'You are tired,' said the wanderer, in a tone that implied dislike of any denial. Therefore, she made no answer. "'I'm going down into the town to look things over.' I don't want to parade you through the streets until I know where Landis is to be found and how he'll receive you. The corner is a wild town, you understand? Yes, she said blankly, and noted nervously that the reply did not please him. He actually scowled at her. You'll be all right here. I'll leave the pack mule with you. If anything should happen, but nothing's going to happen, I'll be back in an hour or so. There's a pool of water. You can get a cold drink there and wash up if you want to while I'm gone. But don't go to sleep. Why not? A place like this is sure to have a lot of stragglers hunting around it. Bad characters, you understand? She could not understand why he should make a mystery of it. But then he was almost as strange as her father. His careful English and his ragged clothes were typical of him inside and out. You have a gun there in your holster. Can you use it? Yes. Try it. It was a thirty-two, a woman's light weapon. She took it out and balanced it in her hand. The blue rock down the hillside. Let me see you chip it. Her hand went up, and without pausing to sight along the barrel, she fired. Fire flew from the rock, and there appeared a white, small scar. Donnegan sighed with relief. If you squeezed the butt rather than pulled the trigger, he commented, you would have made a bullseye that time. Now, I don't mean that, in any likelihood, you'll have to defend yourself. I simply want you to be aware that there's plenty of trouble around the corner. Yes, said the girl. You're not afraid? Oh, no. Donnegan settled his hat a little more firmly upon his head. He had been on the verge of attributing her gentleness 
to a blank, stupid mind. He began to realize that there was metal under the surface. He felt that some of the qualities of her father were echoed faintly and at a distance in the child. In a way, she made him think of an unawakened creature. When she was roused, if the time ever came, it might be that her eye could become a thing alternately of fire and ice, and her voice might carry with a ring. "'This business has to be gotten through quickly,' he went on. "'One meeting with Jack Landis will be enough.' She wondered why he set his jaw when he said this, but he was wondering how deeply the Colonel's ward had fallen into the clutches of Nellie Lebron. If that first meeting did not bring Landis to his senses, what followed? One of two things. Either the girl must stay on in the corner and try her hand with her fiancé again, or else the final brutal suggestion of the colonel must be followed. He must kill Landis. It was a cold-blooded suggestion. But Donnegan was a cold-blooded man. As he looked at the girl where she sat on the boulder, he knew definitely, first and last, that he loved her, and that he would never again love any other woman. Every instinct drew him toward the necessity of destroying Landis. There was a stumbling block. But what if she truly loved Landis? He would have to wait in order to find that out. And as he stood there, with the sun shining on the red stubble on his face, he made a resolution the more profound because it was formed in silence. If she truly loved Landis, he would serve her hand and foot until she had her will. But all he said was simply, I shall be back before it's dark. I shall be comfortable here, replied the girl, and smiled farewell at him. And while Donnegan went down the slope full of darkness, he thought of that smile. The corner spread more clearly before him with every step he made. It was a type of the gold rush town. Of course, most of the dwellings were tents, dog tents, many of them, but there was a surprising sprinkling of wooden shacks, some of them of considerable size. Beginning at the very edge of the town and spread over the sand flats were the mines and the black sprinkling of laborers. And the town itself was roughly jumbled around one street. Over to the left, the main road into the corner crossed the wide, shallow ford of the young muddy river. And up this road, he saw half a dozen wagons coming, wagons of all sizes. But nothing went out of the corner. People who came stayed there, it seemed. He dropped over the lower hills, and the voice of the gold town rose to him. It was a murmur, like that of an army preparing for battle. Now and then, a blast exploded, for what purpose he could not imagine in this school of mining. But as a rule, the sounds were subdued by the distance. He caught the muttering of many voices, in which laughter and shouts were brought into the level of a whisper at close hand. And through all this, there was the persistent clangor of metallic sounds. No doubt, from the blacksmith shops, where picks and other implements were made or sharpened, and all sorts of repairing carried on. But the predominant tone of the voice of the corner was this persistent ringing of metal. It suggested to Donnegan that here was a town filled with men of iron and all the gentler parts of their natures forgotten. 
An odd place to bring such a woman as Lou Macon, surely. He reached the level and entered the town. End of chapter 10